Sunday under three heads. Chapter three. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Siddharth. Charles Dickens' two hundredth anniversary collection, Volume five. Sunday under three heads. Chapter three. By Charles Dickens. Chapter three. As it might be made. The supporters of Sabbath bills, and more especially the extreme class of dissenters, lay great stress upon the declarations occasionally made by criminals from the condemned cell or the scaffold that too Sabbath breaking they attribute their first deviation from the path of rectitude, and they point to these statements as an incontestable proof of the evil consequences which await a departure from that strict and rigid observance of the Sabbath which they uphold. I cannot help thinking that in this, as in almost every other respect connected with the subject, there is a considerable degree of cant and a very great deal of willful blindness. If a man be viciously disposed and with very few exceptions, not a man dies by the executioner's hands who has not been in one way or other a most abandoned and profligate character for many years. If a man be viciously disposed, there is no doubt that he will turn his Sunday to bad account, that he will take advantage of it to dissipate with other bad characters as well as himself and that in this way he may trace his first yielding to temptation, possibly his first commission of crime, to an infringement of the Sabbath. But this would be an argument against any holiday at all. If his holiday had been Wednesday instead of Sunday, and he had devoted it to the same improper uses, it would have been productive of the same results. It is too much to judge of the character of a whole people by the confessions of the very worst members of society. It is not fair to cry down things which are harmless in themselves, because evil-disposed men may turn them to bad account. Whoever thought of depreciating the teaching of poor people to write because some porter in a warehouse had committed forgery? Or into what man's head did it ever enter to prevent the crowding of churches? because it afforded a temptation for the picking of pockets, when the book of sports were allowing the peasantry of England to divert themselves with certain games in the open air on Sundays after evening service was published by Charles I, it is needless to say the English people were comparatively rude and uncivilized, and yet it is extraordinary to how few excuses it gave rise, even in that day then men's minds were not enlightened, or their passions moderated by the influence of education and refinement. That some excesses were committed through its means in the remote parts of the country, and that it was discontinued in those places in consequence cannot be denied. But generally speaking, there is no proof whatever on record of its having any tendency to increase crime or to lower the character of the people. The Puritans of that time were as much opposed to harmless 
recreations and healthful amusements as those of the present day and it is amusing to observe that each in their generation advanced precisely the same description of arguments in the british museum there is a curious pamphlet got up by the agnus of charles time entitled a divine tragedy lately acted or a collection of sundry memorable examples of god's judgments upon sabbath breakers and other like libertines in their unlawful sports happening within the realm of england in the compass only of two years last past since the book of sports was published worthy to be known and considered of all men especially such who are guilty of the sin or arch patrons thereof this amusing document contains some fifty or sixty veritable accounts of balls of fire that fell into the churchyards and upset the sporters and sporters that quarrelled and upset one another and so forth and among them is one anecdote containing an example of a rather different kind which i cannot resist the temptation of quoting as strongly illustrative of the fact that this blinking of the question has not even the recommendation of novelty a woman about northampton the same day that she heard the book for sports read went immediately and having three pence in her purse hired a fellow to go to the next town to fetch a minstrel who coming she with others fell a dancing which continued within night at which time she was caught with child which at the birth she mothering was detected and apprehended and being converted before the justice she confessed it and with her told the occasion of it saying it was her falling to sport on the sabbath upon the reading of the book so as for this terrible sinful act her presumptuous profaning of the sabbath which brought her adultery and that murder she was according to the law of both god and man put to death much sin and misery followed upon sabbath breaking it's needless to say that if the young lady near northampton had fallen to sport of such dangerous description on any other day but sunday the first result would have probably been the same it never having been distinctly shown that sunday is more favorable to the propagation of the human race than any other day in the week the second result murder of the child does not speak very highly of the amiability of her natural disposition and the whole story supposing it to have had any foundation at all is about as much chargeable upon the book of sports as upon the book of kings such sports have taken place in dissenting chapels before now but religion has never been blamed in consequence nor has it been proposed to shut up the chapels on that account the question then very fairly arises whether we have any reason to suppose that allowing games in the open air on sundays or even providing the means of amusement for the humbler classes of society on that day would be hurtful and injurious to the character and morals of the people i was travelling in the west of england a summer or two back and was induced by the beauty of the scenery and the seclusion of the spot to remain for the night in a small village distant about seventy miles from london the next morning was sunday 
and I walked out towards the church. Groups of people, the whole population of the little hamlet apparently, were hastening in the same direction. Cheerful and good-humoured congratulations were heard on all sides as neighbours overtook each other and walked on in company. Occasionally I passed an aged couple whose married daughter and her husband were loitering by the side of the old people, accommodating their rate of walking to their feeble pace, while a little knot of children hurried on before, stout young labourers in clean round frocks and buxom girls with healthy laughing faces were plentifully sprinkled about in couples, and the whole scene was one of quiet and tranquil contentment, irresistibly captivating. The morning was bright and pleasant, the hedges were green and blooming, and a thousand delicious scents were wafted on the air from the wild flowers which blossomed on the either side of the footpath. The little church was one of those venerable simple buildings which about in English countries half overgrown with moss and ivy, and standing in the centre of a little plot of ground which, but for the green moulds with which it was studded, might have passed for a lovely meadow. I fancied that the old clanking bell, which was now summoning the congregation together, would seem less terrible when it rung out the knell of a departed soul than I had ever deemed possible before that the sound would tell only of a welcome to calmness and rest amidst the most peaceful and tranquil scene in nature. I followed into the church, a low-roofed building with small arched windows, through which the sun's rays streamed upon a plain tablet on the opposite wall, which had once recorded names, now as undistinguishable on its worn surface as were the bones beneath from the dust into which they had resolved. The impressive service of the Church of England was spoken, not merely read, by a grey-headed minister, and the responses delivered by his auditors, with an air of sincere devotion as far removed from affection or display as from coldness or indifference. The palms were accompanied by a few instrumental performers who were stationed in a small gallery extending across the church at the lower end, over the door, and the voices were led by the clerk, who, it was evident, derived into slight pride and gratification from this portion of the service. The discourse was plain, unpretending, and well adapted to the comprehension of the hearers. At the conclusion of the service, the villagers waited in the churchyard to salute the clergyman as he passed, and two or three, I observed, stepped aside as of communicating some little difficulty, and asking his advice. This, to guess from homely bows, and other rustic expressions of gratitude, the old gentleman readily conceded. He seemed intimately acquainted with the circumstances of all his parishioners, for I heard him inquire after one man's youngest child and another man's wife, and so forth, that he was fond of his joke. I discovered from overhearing him ask a stout, fresh-coloured young fellow with a very pretty, bashful-looking girl on his arm when those bands were to be put up, an inquiry which made the young fellow more fresh-coloured 
and the girl more bashful, and which, strange to say, caused a great many other girls who were standing round to colour up also, and look anywhere but in their faces of their male companions. As I approached this spot in the evening about half an hour before sunset, I was surprised to hear the hum of voices and occasionally a shout of merriment from the meadow beyond the churchyard, which I found, when I reached the stile, to be occasioned by a very animated game of cricket, in which the boys and young men of the place were engaged, while the females and the old people were scattered about, some seated on the grass watching the progress of the game, and others sauntering about in groups of two or three, gathering little nosegays of wild roses and hedge flowers. I could not but take notice of one old man in particular, with bright-eyed granddaughter by his side, who was giving a sunburnt young fellow some instructions in the game, which he received with an air of profound deference, but with an occasional glance at the girl, which induced me to think that his attention was rather distracted from the old gentleman's narration of the fruits of his experience. When it was in his turn at the wicket too, there was a glance towards the pair every now and then, which the old grandfather very complacently considered as an appeal to his judgment of a particular hit, but which a certain blush in the girl's face and a downcast look of the bright eye led me to believe was intended for somebody else than the old man, and understood by somebody else too, or I am much mistaken. I was in the very height of pleasure which the contemplation of this scene afforded me, when I saw the old clergyman making his way towards us, I trembled for an angry interruption to the sport, and was almost on the point of crying out, to warn the cricketers of his approach. He was so close upon me, however, that I could do nothing but remain still, and anticipate the reproof that was preparing. What was my agreeable surprise to see the old gentleman standing at the stile, with his hands in his pocket, surveying the whole scene with evident satisfaction, and how dull I must have been not to have known till my friend the grandfather, who, by the by, said he had been a wonderful cricketer in his time, told me that it was the clergyman himself who had established the whole thing, that it was his field they played in, and that it was he who had purchased stumps, bats, ball, and all. It is such scenes as this, I would see near London on a Sunday evening, it is such men as this who would do more in one year to make people properly religious, cheerful, and contented than all the legislation of a century could ever accomplish. It will be said, it has been very often that it would be matter of perfect impossibility to make amusements and exercises succeed in large towns, which may be very well adapted to a country population. Here again, we are called upon to yield to bare assertions on matters of belief and opinion, as if they were established and undoubted facts that there is a wide difference between the two cases. No one will be prepared to dispute that the difference is such as to prevent the application of the same principle to wealth. No reasonable man, I think, will be disposed to maintain. The great majority of the people who make holiday on Sunday now are industrious, 
orderly and well-behaved persons, it is not unreasonable to suppose that they would be no more inclined to an abuse of pleasure provided for them than they are to an abuse of the pleasures they provide for themselves. And if any people, for want of something better to do, resort to criminal practices on the Sabbath, as at present observed, no better remedy for the evil can be imagined than giving them the opportunity of doing something which will amuse them and hurt nobody else. The propriety of opening the British Museum to respectable people on Sunday has lately been the subject of some discussion. I think it would puzzle the most austere of the Sunday legislators to assign any valid reason for opposing so sensible a proposition. The museum contains rich specimens from all the vast museums and repositories of nature and rare and curious fragments of the mighty works of art in bygone ages, all calculated to awaken contemplations and inquiry and to tend to the enlightenment and improvement of the people. But attendance would be necessary and a few men would be employed upon the Sabbath. They certainly would, but how many? What if the British Museum and the National Gallery and the Gallery of Practical Science and every other exhibition in London, from which knowledge is to be derived and information gained, were to be thrown open on a Sunday afternoon? Not fifty people would be required to preside over the whole, and it would take triple the number to enforce a Sabbath bill in any three populous parishes. I shall like to see some large field or open piece of ground in every outskirt of London exhibiting each Sunday evening on a larger scale the scene of a little country meadow. I should like to see the time arrive when a man's attendance to his religious duties might be left to that religious feeling which most men possess in a greater or less degree, but which was never forced into the breast of any man by menace or restraint. I should like to see the time when Sunday might be looked forward to as a recognized day of relaxation and enjoyment, and when every man might feel what few men do now, that religion is not incompatible with rational pleasure and needful recreation. How different a picture would the streets and public places then present? The museums and the repositories of scientific and useful inventions would be crowded with ingenious mechanics and industrious artisans, all anxious for information and all unable to procure it at any other time. The spacious saloons would be swarming with practical men, humble in appearance but destined perhaps to become the greatest inventors and philosophers of the age. The laborers who now lounge away the day in idleness and intoxication would be seen hurrying along with cheerful faces in clean attire, not to the close and smoky atmosphere of the public house, but to the fresh and airy fields. Fancy the pleasant scene. Throngs of people pouring out from the lanes and alleys of the metropolis to various places of common resort and some short distance from the town to join in the refreshing sports and exercises of the day. The children gambolling in crowds upon the grass, the mothers looking on and enjoying themselves, their little game they seem to only direct 
other parties strolling along some pleasant walks or reposing in the shade of the stately trees, others of mainly voices and loud shout of mirth, others again intent upon their different amusements. Nothing should be heard on all sides but the sharp stroke of the bat as it sent the ball skimming along the ground, the clear ring of the quake as it struck upon the iron peg, the noisy murmur of many voices, and the loud shout of mirth and delight, which would awaken the echoes far and wide, till the fields rung with it. The day would pass away in a series of enjoyments, which would awaken no painful reflections when night arrived, for they would be calculated to bring with them only health and contentment. The young would lose that dread of religion, which the sore austerity of its professors too often inculcates in youthful blossoms, and the old would find less difficulty in persuading them to respect its observances. The drunken and dissipated, deprived of any excuse for their misconduct, would no longer excite pity but disgust. Above all, the more ignorant and humble class of men, who now partake of many of the bitters of life and taste but few of its sweetness, would naturally feel attachment and respect for that code of morality which, regarding the many hardships of their station, strove to alleviate its triggers and endeavoured to soften its asperity. This is what Sunday might be made, and what it might be made without impiety or profanation. The wise and beneficent Creator who places men upon earth requires that they shall perform the duties of that station of life to which they are called, and he can never intend that the more a man strives to discharge those duties, the more he shall be debarred from happiness and enjoyment. Let those who have six days in a week for all the world's pleasures appropriate the seventh to fasting and gloom, either for their own sins or for those of other people, if they like to bewail them. But let those who employ their six days in a worthier manner devote their seventh to a different purpose. Let divines set the example of true morality, preach it to their flocks, in the morning and dismiss them to enjoy true rest in the afternoon and let them select for their text and let sunday legislatures take for their motto the words which fell upon the lips of that master whose percepts they misconstrue and whose lessons they pervert the sabbath was made for man and not man to serve the sabbath end of Sunday under three heads.